Well, well, well. Look who it is. Again. What a surprise. Anyway, hope you're all excited for the new season and the pledge drive coming up next week. We thought, let's give them one more release to wet their teeth before all of that. So we've got another sampler pack for you of Patreon exclusives from 2022. Today, we've got Toenail, One Per Person, and In the Shadow of the Purple Feather Mountain. This is, of course, all made possible by the support of our patrons over at patreon.com slash therongstation. Thank you all very much. You can also head over there to check out behind-the-scenes discussions, get an RSS link to listen to the show ad-free, and all sorts of other goodies that we've got lined up. But remember, anyone can support the show just by subscribing, sharing, and leaving a review. So, to all of our listeners, thank you, and enjoy. She noticed in the shower one morning that the big toenail on her right foot was getting a little bit long. Not crazy long. Nothing weird or wrong or deformed. Just a little bit long. Call it one or two millimeters longer than the rest of her toenails. A little bit dark underneath with lint from her black socks. Uh. She did the little one-leg pigeon pose chicken hop, which probably kills so many people in the shower, in order to reach the toenail and clean underneath it. She was running about ten minutes late already that morning, and she didn't want to turn that ten minutes into fifteen with the time it would take to rummage through her drawers and find the nail clippers. She was already pretty stressed. And with the lint cleaned out underneath it, the nail didn't look that bad. Honestly, it looked fine. You could barely notice it, even if you were to look. She turned off the water, nearly slipped on the tile floor, and did her best to get to the point where she could rush out the door. She was only twelve minutes late that morning. But the toenail didn't get cut. This process repeated itself once or twice in the weeks to come, but she didn't really notice the toenail again until one evening after work. She had her bare feet kicked up on the armrest of the couch, watching TV with her overheating, fan-dead laptop sitting on her stomach. Cooking her ovaries, probably. You get it. She was watching the most mind-numbing dreck the algorithm could summon up from its wretched bowels. She had to scroll past several outrageously bad and ethically dubious programs to arrive at one that was just brain-dead enough to match her current state of mind. It was a show where hot people, I'm not even kidding you, had to eat shit together to see if they would fall in love. Bonus prizes if they could guess what kind of shit it was. Just big shirtless beefcakes and heavily inflated women named Alyssa sitting at a lazy Susan while someone who was functionally Ryan Seacrest intoned seriously that this was for immunity. But she was so tired that even this required a bit too much attention. And so her eyes wandered up across the darkened, flickering walls of her apartment until they aligned on her right big toe, hovering listlessly over the back of the laptop screen. Wow. The toenail had gotten long. Like, pretty long. She hadn't noticed exactly how long it had gotten because it had started to curl back inward on itself, so that it was actually about 40% longer than it appeared. Surely, surely the time had come to cut it. Well, not right now. She didn't really feel like getting up. After all, she just had to know whether Jaden would choose Harper, Alyssa, or Sophia to get immunity in the upcoming shit crisis. And at this point, there was almost an element of strange pride and curiosity about it. The toenail. Like how when you let your hair get too long and you decide it's a look, and you decide you just want to see what it looks like when it gets as long as it can. Something like that. 
And so she just smiled at the toe and chuckled with a sort of knucklehead <laughs> sound and went back to her show. In the end, it turned out to be a shocker twist episode. Jaden gave immunity to Chad. Hot people eat actual shit had been making bold attempts to rainbow wash its image after a noticeably heteronormative first few seasons. Was it allyship? No, not exactly. And neither was it a pair of nail clippers. The toenail didn't get cut. She forgot about it again. She didn't even think about it until God knows how much later, when she was halfway through her workday and a sudden, sharp pain sparked at the end of her right big toe. It sounds like kind of a silly place to be hurt, but it hurt. The pain was phenomenal, like a hot wire burning right into her flesh. Panicking, she limped to the bathroom, kicked off her right flat, and whipped off the sock to reveal. The nail had grown inward, like back into her. Like how sometimes a bighorn sheep's big horns get too big and they corkscrew back up into its head and spiral through the brain until the brain pops out the back of its broken skull and paled on the tip of the horn like a pepperoncini on a swizzle stick poking out of a dry gin Caesar. Like that, but with a toenail and her big toe. It hurt. And more to the point, it was horrible, disgusting, freakish. More than she was in pain, she was humiliated. Humiliated that she had let it get to this, that this completely preventable problem had risen to the level of crisis. What the fuck, she whispered to herself. What the fuck? Excuse me? Asked the woman in the next stall. Nothing. She was also annoyed. Beyond being horrified, she was also annoyed. Of course it had to happen today of all days, because she had a major deadline today. Had to be sent by 11.59pm, and it was already looking like she was going to be working right up to the wire. She worked the kind of job where you couldn't really just duck out halfway through the afternoon. Too much was at stake. It was too important. And when there were deadlines involved? Oof. What, was she just going to go up to her boss and explain that her foot hurt? Of course not. He was old school. A piece of shit, honestly. But someone she had to put up with. And so she slid her sock and shoe back on, asked the woman in the next stall for an ibuprofen, and went back out there and goddamn it finished her day. Afterwards, she went out with her team members for drinks, got drunk enough that she didn't think about the toenail again that night, hung over enough that she didn't think about it again for the next two days. And by that point, it had stopped hurting, other than a little twinge now and then when she was out, faint enough that she'd have forgotten about it again by the time she got home. You get how it is. We're busy. She didn't think about it again until some weeks later, when she had a sudden stabbing pain in her abdomen. Her first and completely insane thought was, My God, it's the toenail. It's grown all the way up into my belly and it's going to kill me. It was ridiculous, but you can understand. It's the sort of catastrophizing thought that a lot of us have about things we're ashamed about. Little things that we've let slip past, even though we knew better. She made an appointment with her doctor, and she got to see him in the next week. Being a male doctor, he didn't really take her pain too seriously, but wrote a thing for her to get an ultrasound anyway. Because the clinic was only open during working hours, it took her another three weeks to get her act together enough to actually go. Her doctor got the results a few days later after that. His voice was shaky when she picked up the phone. Uh, hey, uh, listen, he said. She could tell he was trying as hard as he could to sound calm, but she could hear the bullet sweat splashing, running down the glassy surface of his phone to drip and splash against the floor in the distance. 
So you need to go to Emerge right now. Like right now. You've got... Look, they're not going to believe you anyway, but show them what I send you. Her phone bleeped. He'd forwarded her a picture of the ultrasound. She didn't really know how to read the ultrasound. But she didn't really have to. A dark slash to the middle of the image confirmed her worst fears. The toenail. She called an ambulance. Money was a bit tight and she knew they'd send an invoice. But fuck it, she called an ambulance. The paramedics were kind and understanding, but a bit uncertain. They were also very hot. She thought they'd make a great team on a show where hot people ate shit with the guy who wasn't Ryan Seacrest. But she thought they might take it the wrong way. The ambulance screamed through city streets, pulled into the hospital roundabout in a cloud of burned rubber. You've got a what growing where? said the triage nurse with a raised eyebrow. Holy fucking shit, get this woman prepped for surgery immediately, said the attending physician a few moments later. She had never, never in her life moved through the province's underfunded healthcare system more quickly. Five, I'm not kidding, five minutes after the attending had glanced at her ultrasound, she was in surgery and the anesthesiologist was putting a rubbery mask over her face. Count back from ten. She reached about eight before everything went away. All was dark. Her stomach hurt a bit, but the only other sound was a distant, high-pitched sound. As she started to come to, she realized the sound was screaming. Her eyelids fluttered. Where was she? A bright, bright light. Oh, that's right, the, the hospital. Surgery. There was some kind of problem and she'd had to... Screaming. That was bad. There wasn't supposed to be screaming. Who was screaming? Why? Her eyelids fluttered again. There was a shadow hanging in front of that light. Screaming, eyelids fluttering. Red splattered across the lens of that bright overhead light. And then her eyes opened fully, and the breath caught in her lungs. That shadow hanging in front of the light was a man in blue scrubs. The surgeon. He was impaled on something long, narrow, and pale. It had shot up at him from below, lifting him as it pierced his belly and nailed him up onto the ceiling. Blood dribbled slowly down from his belly, running all the way down the pale thing which ran into her own. My god, a toenail. She put it all together at last. The surgeon had cut into her, releasing the toenail which had been curled up like a horrific spring inside her, ready to erupt and slaughter whoever tried to save her. There was more screaming. A nurse was curled in the corner of the room, shouting and sobbing and clawing at her face. As she looked, the nurse locked eyes with her and realized she was awake. You bitch, the nurse screamed. You Bitch, you've killed him! We were in love, goddamn you! Goddamn you! We were in love! We were gonna have a family! He was gonna leave his wife for me! You bitch! I'll kill you! The nurse reached up and grabbed the scalpel which had flown out of the surgeon's hand and buried itself on the wall behind the nurse's head. But before the nurse could charge with the glinting knife, a pair of large nurses had tackled the nurse and wrenched away the scalpel. They dragged the nurse, still screaming from the room. The next thing she saw was the anesthesiologist again, smiling with a terrified, forced quality as they pushed the rubbery mask back down over her face. Count down from ten, okay? And this time, she made it all the way to seven. When she awoke, her stomach was all patched up, and her right leg was in a brace, and the toenail was cut. 
When she went home, they let her take the toenail with her. There was nothing biohazardous about it, in and of itself. Once they'd washed the surgeon's blood off of it, it was just a toenail. A whimsical frame of mind led her to think it might be an interesting object art to hang on the living room wall. But she never really got around to it. You understand, we're busy. And so the toenail gathered dust, half forgotten in the back of the hallway closet. She decided in the end it was better off that way. The whole ordeal was a traumatic memory. Better to try and forget about it. And difficult though it may be to believe, she was fairly successful on that account. People are good at forgetting about things when they want to be. And the time came before too long that she forgot about it altogether. Until she noticed in the shower one morning that the big toenail on her right foot was getting a little bit long. One of the consolations of the ten-minute wait at Colburn Subway Station was that you got to watch the rats at work and play under the platform on the other side. Not that Colburn was overrun with rats, per se. No, no. If anything, Colburn was a very desirable neighborhood with very desirable rats. So far as rats went. You want to hear something messed up that I heard once? Said Alan, staring at the rats. Not really, but go off. Said Fang, also looking at the rats. I heard once, and maybe this is complete bullshit, but I heard that in a big city, there's one rat for every person. Every person. Isn't that messed up? Not really, said Heba. Heba was also there, and she was also, you guessed it, staring at the rats. If anything, I think there should probably be more. Thanks, I hate it, said Fang. No, just think about it, said Heba. Rats are, like, ubiquitous. There's six million people in the GTA, said Fang. You think there's six million rats? Oh, yeah, for sure. Where are they all, then? Heba shrugged. Around? In the walls and tunnels and stuff? Think about how rarely you see a rat. Think about how often you see a person. You think it's one-to-one? That's the problem with you, Fang, said Alan. No sense of wonder, no mystery or romanticism. Romanticism? Yeah, but the rats aren't in human places, they're in rat places, said Heba. They're probably all together and stuff, you know, in a big cuddle puddle at the dump or whatnot. Think how many rats you can cram into a little place. They're probably just crammed tight in all sorts of places, like like under our feet right now. Probably just stamp really hard and whoosh, rat geyser. Fang gagged. No, no, he said. I send it back. Heba concluded her thought, wearing a little smile of triumph. Yeah, she said. I bet there's ten million rats in this city. Maybe twenty. However much biomass of humans there is, I bet there's twice that much in rats. A rat weighs, what, half a pound? So that's, like, 300 rats for the average person. What's 300 times 6 million? That's how many rats I bet there are under our feet right now. That's not what I heard, said Alan, dreamily. What I heard was that there was just one. One rat, one person. Don't you think that's kind of romantic? Nope said Fang, that somewhere out there is your rat. I think that's beautiful. Bruh, said Heba. What is with you right now? But the subway finally arrived before he could answer. 
and the three friends parted ways over the next five stops. Though, when he arrived home, Alan had a visitor waiting for him. Alan, it said. It was a large and somewhat scabrous rat, drinking one of Alan's beers out of a little thimble. Oh, uh, hello? Um, what are you? The rat spread his little pink fingers. Alan, it's me. I'm him. I'm your rat. Alan dropped his bag, and his eyes went wide. You mean, that's right, buddy. The rat seemed on the brink of joyous tears. After all these months, I finally found you. Do you have any idea how hard it is for a rat to find their person? We don't live that long out there, man. And there's so many of you up here. Can you believe there's six million people living in the GTA? Boggles the mind, dude. Boggles the freaking mind. Alan joined him at the table, overwhelmed, almost speechless. It was just... It was just such a special thing. Such a special moment. I'm... I'm I'm thrilled, dude. He managed at last. I didn't even know you were out there. I mean, I hoped, but... So, what do we do now? Do you want, like, a, a bit of peanut butter or something? The rat pushed aside his thimble and stared at Alan, suddenly intent. Join with me, Alan. What? Join with me. Become one. Together we'd be unstoppable. Alan, just imagine it. And here the rat looked down at his own little pink paw, which curled slowly into a fist. Imagine the power. Oh, uh, I I don't know, man. Like, what would that, you know, entail? The rat looked back up at him, eyes dark and intense, and Alan felt himself drawn in by the little guy's raw charisma. Just say yes, said the rat. Come on, Alan, be spontaneous for once in your life. Say yes, become one with me, and we can rule this little city like the pharaohs of old. Well... Alan thought for a moment, and then brightened. Well, sure, he said. Why not? Yeah, I'll join with you. Yes, said the rat. Yes! And before Alan could do anything else, the rat had drained his thimble, wiped his scabby little lips, and leaped at Alan like a cat in heat. Oh, <laughs> that, that tickles, said Alan, as the rat dove between the buttons of his shirt and scurried down his chest. Where are you? Uh, uh, ah! And Alan began to scream as the rat burrowed headfirst into his navel, deeper and deeper, with rooting snout and scrabbling claws, until only the lashing, worm-like tail remained. Oh, no, said Alan feebly tugging at the thrashing tail. Oh, no, I I don't feel so good. But it was far too late for poor fucking Alan, for no sooner had the words exited his mouth than his head split open like a big ripe tomato on a sunny summer's day, and a giant rat's head, blood slicked from the birthing canal of Alan's neck, burst forth. A shrunken, Human head with Alan's face gasped feebly from just behind the rat head's jaw. Yes!
shouted the rat, raising his fists to the sky, or, in this case, Alan's seven-foot ceiling. Yes! One at last! We are one at last, Alan! Nothing can stop us now! Not the government or the media! Not even that mewling pervert that you call a god! Unlimited power! <laughs> And that, dear listener, well, (laughs) that is where our story ends. For now. In the thirteenth year of the reign of the abundant Harvest Emperor, a contest was held in the sand garden of the Jade Palace underneath Purple Feather Mountain. Five martial artists had been invited from the five corners of the world to compete for the title of Greatest Living Master. From the west came Stone Crown Gao, whose training in the mountains had made his long legs strong enough to crack basalt. He had a long, craggy face and short, deeply wrinkled brow. His immense height and ill-tanned goatskin tunic made him stand out from the finery and silk of the imperial court. From the southeast came Yim the Rogue Wave, who had once, for the sake of her honor, allowed herself to be swallowed whole by a toothed whale, only then to punch her way out of the creature's blowhole, covered in gore. She was far and away the shortest of the five, but her massive torso and long arms made her not only an extraordinary swimmer, but also a boxer and grappler of extraordinary endurance. From the south came Gorgeous Shen, the dandy of death, whose wiles with the scholar's blade were rivaled only by his skill with the wives of bureaucrats. He was perhaps best known for his duel with four hundred husbands, wherein an army of disgruntled spouses had attacked him, and received in turn only the character for cuckold carved into their foreheads with the point of the Jian. Nevertheless, he was held in contempt for this feat by the other four contestants, for only a few of the husbands had been martial men and only then of low standing. From the north came Jun Huan, who had been pulling a 200-pound bow from the age of two years old. As a result, her right arm was four times the size of her left, and it was said she could use it to tear off a wolf's head. And yet, despite her one huge arm and missing right breast, she carried herself with a dignified and regal air, for she was a queen among her people. Gorgeous Shen kept trying to catch her eye, not realizing that she had literally caught her last suitor's eye right out of his head. And finally, from the northeast, Energy Wu, the thousand-handed sage whose mastery of internal martial arts techniques was said to make him invincible, where the others paced or shifted from side to side or sized up their opponents. Sage Wu merely sat cross-legged, contemplating the universe. At a signal from one of the court bureaucrats, hidden musicians began to play, so that the sand garden filled with a slow, shimmering tide of noise, building to a crash of kettle drums. A moment of silence, then a high coda of eight notes was played upon a flute. This was the signal to begin. The courtiers held their breath. Behind the impassive mask of his face, The Emperor's eyes blazed. And yet, none of the martial artists moved to attack. A tense silence filled the garden. 
To the uninitiated, it seemed as though they were standing there doing nothing, yet to those with discernment in such matters, the contest was already a masterful display of kung fu, as move and counter-move and counter-move played out in the subtle shift of each martial artist's weight, in the crackling movement of glance and intention. Only Sage Wu seemed aloof from the game so far. Alone of them all, he remained still, breathing steadily. After forty-five minutes of this stillness under the afternoon sun, one of the bureaucrats in the audience, who lacked the discerning eye of some of his peers, decided to speak up. Masters, quoth he, that sound of the flute was meant to indicate the beginning of the bout, if the five great ones here would... But he did not finish this sentence, for an invisible force had lifted him off his feet and sent him flying thirty feet backwards into a monkey puzzle tree. The bureaucrat collapsed and had to be carried off, bleeding on a stretcher. Every eye in the audience widened. What had happened to the man? Only true connoisseurs of the martial arts would have caught what happened. A single grain of sand flicked from the finger of Energy Wu had been what struck him. Few present had ever seen a feat of martial arts like that before. And it was exactly a distraction like this that Gorgeous Shen had been waiting for. The moment Yim the Rogue Wave glanced in Sage Wu's direction, he was already leaping towards her, the blade of his Jian like lightning in the daylight. But Yim was well used to spotting danger in the flash of sunlight on the waves. Spotting the sun's glare off Shen's sword, she leaped forward, ducking under the sword's point as she rolled her compact body into an almost perfect sphere. It was a signature technique, the Nautilus Strike, and she had used it to punch through the hulls of ships. If she had made contact, Shen's knees would have shattered like stems of glass. But at the last possible moment, the southern rake pulled on his sword, as if it was lodged in thin air, and then leaped over it, reversing the blade with a flourish as he landed. A gasp went through the crowd at these two perfectly executed techniques. Several of the ladies flushed and hid behind their fans, as Gorgeous's smile flashed as brightly as his sword. But already the fight had spread to a new quarter— no sooner had Shen made his move, than did Stone Crown Gao and Zhan Huan leap forward, each opened with one of their strongest techniques. Gao spun four times in the space of a second, building up momentum for his rock-splutter heel. Meanwhile, Huan had tapped one delicate foot on the ground, flinging herself twenty-five feet in the air to hurtle down behind her big right hand in Fist of the Eternal Blue Sky. The sound of heel and fist striking was like thunder on the mountains. The shockwave knocked down four bureaucrats and sent the emperor's hat spinning. Both fighters were sent soaring backwards in a cloud of dust. But both landed on their feet. And now the melee had begun in earnest. Stone Crown Gao launched kick after devastating kick at the rogue wave, who absorbed each one like blows from the coil of a great squid's tentacle. Meanwhile, Gorgeous Shen's pursuit of Jun Huan was both literal and figurative. He had sheathed his blade and instead drawn a twig of peach blossoms, each one razor-edged and soaked with a deadly love potion. Only by leaping backwards and shooting each petal with a separate arrow was the barbarian queen able to preserve her life. And chastity. And all this time, the great sage Energy Wu sat completely still, lost in meditation. When clouds of sand threatened to smother him, he exhaled a great steaming wind and blew them away. 
When Yim the rogue wave grappled Stone Crown Gao and threw the lummox fifty feet, the sage reached out one hand and caught all three hundred pounds of him like a tossed bun. When Gao snarled and brought down an axe kick upon him, the sage merely accepted the blow, and Gao's kick rebounded so vigorously that he was sent airborne once again, killing three of the Imperial Guard instantly when he landed on them. For several hours this fight raged, and none of the contestants seemed to tire, though each performed as many feats of physical prowess in a minute as a strong man might perform in his entire lifetime. As the day began to draw to a close, and the shadows of Purplefeather Mountain began to stretch across the court, Energy Wu had yet to end his meditation and enter the fray. He was unperturbed, as was the Purple Man who stood behind him. The Purple Man had appeared a few minutes ago, but everybody had been too distracted by the fight to notice his arrival. He was average-sized, middle-aged, quite ugly, and a little lumpy. His clothes seemed to have been stained with some sort of garish purple dye, as had large patches of his skin. He was covered in loose feathers, and with one hand he was eating a whole raw golden eagle, as if it was a persimmon. At last, some of the more sharp-eyed members of the crowd began to notice him. A murmur went about. How had this beggar made his way into the Jade Palace, past all those guards? Was this some sort of gambit by one of the masters? And if so, what type? And hoping to accomplish what? At last, an official put up his hand, and the hidden musicians played a great chord which brought a pause to the fight. You, beggar, he shouted. Who are you? And what right do you have to witness this secret contest between masters of the Martial Brotherhood? The purple man seemed surprised to be called upon, and pointed to himself in confusion. Yes, you, purple beggar. Who else would we be talking to? Me, said the man. My name's Garbage. Garbage Way. I'm here for the contest. Garbage? What kind of despicable name is that? Who lets you in? Garbage looked confused. Is this not the fight? To see who's the best fighter? I'm here to compete. A wave of laughter rose from the crowd. This ruffian? Not even the most learned experts on the Martial Brotherhood had ever heard of such a person as Garbage Way. And it was clear to look at the man that he had no kung fu. You? mocked the official. And what school do you represent, Mr. Way? Where are you from? Wei still looked confused. He gestured with the bloody, half-eaten eagle. I come from the mountain, he said. And at this, a sudden, cold hush descended on the crowd. Nobody came from Purple Feather Mountain. It was said that evil spirits lived there, with many wings and many eyes. Anyway, said Garbage, and he brought the eagle carcass swinging down toward the head of Energy Wu, the thousand-handed sage. Sensing the rush of air from the approaching bird, Wu inhaled, channeling his internal energy to rebuff the attack, as he had done with the axe-kick of Stone Crown Gao. But it didn't work. It just didn't work. The eagle hit him, and his head split open. And that was that. He was dead. The other four masters looked at him in horror. Wei was just looking down at the broken body of Energy Wu, 
a bit like a child that had accidentally broken a toy. And then, with a collective shout, all four masters rushed at the purple man. The mountain breaker stomp. Oh, shouted Garbage Way as he swung the bloody wreckage of the eagle, and Stone Crown Gao was dead. The kraken rending grip. But Wei just shook off Yim the rogue wave and smacked her with the eagle he'd been eating, and the force of the blow sent her down to the dust with her chest caved in. Setting aside their differences, Jun Huan and Gorgeous Shen leapt toward him, their bodies moving as one, weaving a glorious pattern as the blue sky fist and heaven-born sword came down together with a force that would have broken the line of a ten-thousand-man army. But a heartbeat later, they were dead, their fingers brushing against each other in the dust. Okay, said Garbage Away, stepping forward. Okay, so uh, I'm the king now, yeah? A deep silence reigned, unbroken over the Jade Palace. Okay, said Wei. He stepped towards the dais. None of the Emperor's guards stepped into his way. Yeah, yeah, said the purple man. He stepped up to the foot of the throne. To the abundant Harvest Emperor's credit, he did not forget his dignity as the feathered man reached out and broke his neck. The body slumped forward and fell down to the foot of the stair. Garbage Way took his seat atop the throne. Silence. Then one of the bureaucrats, the same who had berated Garbage Way mere moments earlier, approached the base of the throne to kowtow. Great Emperor, he said. What, what would you have your servants do? Emperor Wei thought about this for a moment. Then, tossing aside the eagle carcass, he made up his mind. Uh, I think, he said, I think bring me some people to eat. The bureaucrat kowtowed. It shall be so, he said. And so it was. And so the reign of the abundant harvest emperor ended, and the reign of the purple feather emperor began. It has not ended yet.